Welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Hello folks, welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. I'm Lane Stretton. I have the privilege of bringing you this podcast this afternoon. Well, what can we say about this lady? She is a personal trainer, a life coach, and the director of a business that is literally saving hundreds and hundreds of lives. She's a mum to two great kids, Harrison and Zali. She lives in Brisbane, Australia, and she's been known to do the occasional marathon in her spare time. How does she fit it all in? Well, we're going to find out today. Her name is Bromwyn Edwards, and she's the founder of Roses in the Ocean, the voice of lived experience in suicide prevention. And I've got the privilege of sitting down across the kitchen table for a good old chat to find out how she does it. Get ready to be inspired by this dynamic woman and her lived experience story today. Good afternoon, Bron. Hey, how are you going? Good, good. Nice to have you um, as part of our uh, Roses podcast today. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining us. Let me take you straight to the 31st of August. Uh, it's your birthday. What does that day mean to you now? Uh, it's a really difficult day, um, but it's, a, it's surreal. I wake up in the morning with a feeling in my stomach like I did on the morning that Mark died. So I wake up there and I lie with that feeling for a bit and then um, I just get up and get on with it because 
nowadays that day is a is a busy day for us in terms of uh, this year we had a corporate breakfast that morning um, and so it's real mixed feelings of being in incredibly sad because it's the day that Mark died um, and and yet we're doing something positive on the day and so yeah. I, I go into work mode and that's how I cope with that day actually do you do you I'm sure people are going to be interested do you resent the choice of that day that um, Mark was lost to us through suicide, that it was your birthday? And, and why do you think that, why do you think he chose your birthday? I don't think he chose my birthday. I think um, that weekend was always going to be a really difficult weekend for him. And I had had every intention of being with him on that weekend. Uh, and for whatever reason, well, actually, I do know. I, I'd spoken to a, a psychologist the week before uh, looking for some more support and how I could help Mark. And he had said to me, you have to set boundaries. Uh, I will forever then to this day wish I'd not seen that psychologist uh, at that time because I did actually set a boundary and um, I did let Mark know that I wouldn't come to Sydney on that weekend because it was my birthday and I had two little kids. So, so he was, wanted you to come down to see him He wanted me. He, did, he just arrived back from overseas on the, I think, the Friday night or Saturday morning he was flying in. He'd agreed to go to a private clinic uh, on the Monday and he'd said, I really need you in Sydney this weekend. So I'd initially agreed to go. And then... Um, decided that I would set a boundary. It was a real values dilemma for me because had I not had the children and been married, I would have been in Sydney. There's nothing that could have stopped me from being there. But because I had the little ones, they were five and three, I was, it was a real values issue. It was like, God, I really need to be here for my birthday because the kids want me here for my birthday. Mm. And so I felt very torn and I made the decision to stay. Um, so the last, the last thing I got from Mark, the last text I got was that he never needed me more and I wasn't there. Mm. So he was definitely angry with me. Um, so, but am I resentful? I can't be. And lots of people have asked if I'm angry. Um, so a lot of people expect me to be really annoyed at that. I've never been able to be angry with him because I spent too much time seeing how much pain he was in. Mm. So I don't... I don't believe he took his life on purpose on my birthday to spite me, um, but I do think there's an element of me not being there that contributed to it being on that day. Yeah, sure. Because I think one of the biggest things that keeps people alive is a lifeline with their family mm. and close friends, and I honestly believe that he he thought that he had become so much of a burden and that his final lifeline had actually stood up to him and said, no, no, I'll be there on Monday. And I think it probably contributed to it. Okay. So that's obviously something that I've taken years to um, process and rationalise. Um, there's a lot of guilt that sits with that. But uh, I can say now that I think I've come to, well, I have, I've come to accept that whilst had I gone down there, I believe I would have prevented what happened on that day. 
but could I have kept him safe 24-7 indefinitely? No. Mm. So uh, that's what suicide does, though, doesn't it? It's all those questions. Mm. It's could I have what saved if... him then? Yes. Yep. If I had and he went into the private clinic and got some real help that he needed, would it have been different? Possibly, but we'll never know. Mm. So, no, not angry with him. Um, it certainly has wrecked my birthday. <laughs> I can imagine, but, um, what has it done to the kids? Like your birthday is a day of celebration, isn't it? You get up in the morning, they get a lot of enjoyment. You know, our, our families get a lot of enjoyment just um, leveraging off our, um, you know, the enjoyment we have during the course of the day as we celebrate, you know, maybe not as we get a bit older, but certainly as we celebrate, um, you know, another year, uh, they bring us gifts and we go out to lunch and all sorts of things. It's kind of taken a bit of that away from your family. Do you think that they yeah, kind of resent a little bit that they can't celebrate that with you? Um, it's, it's been very difficult for them. Mm. Uh, my mum in particular really struggles with it because in her mind I've now robbed her of the right to celebrate her other child and yet for me it's, there's, there's no one in our family that's going to wake up on the 31st of August and go, hooray, it's Brody's birthday. Yeah. Everyone wakes up with that feeling that that's the day that Mark died. As do I. And so for people to actually say happy birthday to me on that day, it makes me cry because there's nothing happy about that day. So, And it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because I, from my perspective, so I know um, what your birthday means um, and I don't send you a happy birthday, but I would, I would more send you a thinking of you on this day, which is a really bizarre thing to do on someone's birthday, isn't it? It is. And so for friends... Um, those who know me, that's exactly what happens. Um, I only open presents on that day because of the children. Yeah. And even my daughter, who's almost 14, she knows that I don't celebrate my birthday. And that really sucks. Because mm. it is. It's, it has taken it away for the kids. Yeah. Um, and it's awkward. I mean, last year I actually wrote – I don't do much on Facebook, but um, I did write on – my page on my birthday last year, just basically giving people permission to to just know that it's okay. Like the day sucks. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those days. So please don't feel bad about it. It is what it is. And, you know, I just wanted them to be okay with it, I guess. But, it, yeah, it's all a bit bizarre now. And it, I guess that day also brings back memories for the kids. So they're, they're kind of a little bit torn because they know what the day represents as well. And they were close to Mark. I think particularly your oldest was, was close to her uncle, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, okay. both, both the kids adored him. Um, but, you know, Zali was five, Harrison was three. So Harrison, Harrison doesn't remember Mark really, um, which upsets him. We talk about him and he has photos and things like that. Zali remembers him. Um, but she actually just mentioned to me last week, she came to one of the breakfasts that we held on the Sunshine Coast and someone actually asked her, it was the first official event she'd been to and um, they asked her, oh, you know, what do you remember? And she, she said she actually remembered the day that we found out. So I, I'd never heard that from her. So that day is obviously embedded in her memory because she was actually the kids were in the car with me when we got the phone call um so that was a fairly horrific event so it's stuck in her mind um yeah so it's weird 
Yeah, it is. You tell a story, I think, about the kids and the um, and going to the grave. I think a lot of people would be interested to know, you know, what is the impact it has on young children? Um, for those who might have experienced it recently or, or are, um, are experiencing something of a similar nature, you know, five and three, they were little. Um, what impact has it had on them uh, up until now, at sort of 15 and 13? Uh, it's different, different sort of reactions and different impacts, I think. In terms of going to the actual grave, um, Zali's never been. Uh, she was in the car once when I wanted to go and we are on the way up the coast or something, So, but she didn't get out. I think Harrison's come with me once. Um, but we actually put a, uh, a beautiful statue. I, I went and found this lovely statue which had no particular meaning and put it in the garden here at home. And when the kids were smaller, they would uh, do things there. So Harrison would put his football there or Zali would pick a flower from the tree and put it there and I would put flowers there on certain times. It's, it's just an easy way to acknowledge without going to the grave. I don't go to Mark's grave very often. Um, certainly it would be once or twice a year at the beginning because it was just so difficult. Uh, now I would go a little bit more. Sometimes, occasionally, if I really just wish my big brother was here so I could talk to him about stuff that's going on, I will go out there and just lie on the grass beside him and have a chat. Mm. Um, so it's a little bit easier, but it's still not a, an easy place to go. Having said that, my mum goes every Sunday. Okay. She has placed flowers at that grave every weekend that she's been in town in eight wow. years. It's amazing. Mm. How has it affected you? So, you know, we've talked about the birthday, we've talked about the kids, now I want to talk about you. What has changed as a result of Mark's death through suicide for you? I think I have changed as a person. Um, some, some ways good, some ways not. Um, I don't think I'm as fun. Um, probably not as spontaneous and I don't think I laugh as much. Mm -hmm. So there's, I think, um, I can certainly have fun and I, I can certainly have a good time with people and what have you, but I think there's an, <clears throat> I don't know, it's like there's a, there's that the edge of joy is being rubbed away or something and I really hope that comes back. Mm. But that's definitely changed. Um, like I really feel like I've, probably been through the worst I'm going to go through in life. Um, short of something happening to the kids, I kind of feel like I'll cope with anything. Okay. So there's a, a, a great strength um, that comes from surviving what we have. Mm. And definitely a, a, a passion for what I now do. I mean, that I would never be working in suicide prevention had this not happened. Mm. And I get an enormous amount of energy and um, um, I'm very proud of what we do. You know, I, it, it's really very important to me and I love it. I really, really love it and I've met incredible people. Yeah, they are incredible. Um, tell me about uh, mum and dad, the impact it's had on them. Um, they're elderly now. What do they carry forward as a result of this experience? 
Yeah, look, mum's a really strong lady. She always has been. Um, I'm sure behind closed doors, like all of us, she has her moments. I've no doubt about that. But she is um, very engaged in life and retired and active and healthy. So, you know, she's she has survived really well. Um, my dad... His, his memory started to get very bad in the few years leading up to Mark's death when we were all under an enormous amount of pressure trying to help him. And at the time, we sort of put it down to that level of stress. And then since Mark's death, it very, very quickly um, plummeted into Alzheimer's dementia. I can't help but think it's, it's a result of of all the pressure that was on, I, I don't, I haven't have a medical background, but that would be my, that would be my guess that all of that pressure and then losing Mark has actually um, created the situation. So I, I've really lost Dad now. Um, so he's he still recognises us and everything, but you cannot have a conversation. So you know, Mark's gone, Dad's essentially gone. Um, so it's really sad. What is it that's your enduring memory of Mark? What do you what do you what do you hold on to? <laughs> um, he he was he was larger than life. He was one of those big characters in life. He was a pilot, wasn't he? He was a fighter pilot. Um, so he left, finished grade twelve, went straight into the RAF. So he was seventeen. Um, Graduated at 19 as Australia's youngest fighter pilot out of wartime. So he was flying Mirages and, and then went on to F-18 Hornets, became a fighter combat instructor. It's like you Top know, Gun. Those guys were it's all like Top, top Gun. gun. They were. <laughs> it's and like it's ridiculous. Maverick and Goose. But they were. <laughs> they all wore the aviator sunnies. And yeah, they, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the personalities, they have to go through so much psych testing and, yeah. and the, the actual pilot's course is so tough. So... To get through and to be offered a position in a fighter squadron is a really big deal. And um, and the boys had the personalities to go with them. And yet, when you get to know them, like I do know a lot of Mark's uh, ex-fighter mates, they're the loveliest guys, really lovely. And some of them are very, very down to earth. But they played hard yeah. um, and they worked hard. And and he was, he was the guy who flew fighters and skied black runs and water skied on one ski and he was just one of those guys that did it all. Um, he was pretty arrogant at times and yet um, there's another side to him where he would be the guy out surfing in Coolum on a week's you know break from, from flying when he was in the, um, in the international airlines after the RAF and it would be him that would be chatting to the 16-year-old who was wagging school um, and convincing this kid that he needed to get back and finish his HSC or, you know, he was, he was just incredibly caring. You know, he put in disability bathrooms for the grandparents and, um, you know, assisted a family in Peru, his mate Jose, for them to expand their hostel so it would be a viable business. There was an incredibly generous, caring, sensitive side to, to Mark as well. Um, uh, but growing up, you know, he, I was 13 when he left home to go to the rap. So I, I really idolised him because I only see him a few weeks every year when he came home. 
Um, we fought like cats and dogs as kids. Shocking, absolutely shocking. <laughs> I remember wishing, saying to mum, I wish you'd just put me in hospital, then you'd realise how much you hurt me all the time. But it was just kids, being kids, but we were particularly um, feisty when we were little until mum and dad split. And the day that we were told that they were splitting up, I remember um, sitting on his lap in his bedroom and him just saying to me, listen, it's you and I now. We've got to take care of each other. Okay. Um, and from that moment, we were very, very close. Um, where did, uh, did you see any signs? Where did the whole suicide possibility emerge from, from your perspective? When did it first come about? So uh, the first, first time Mark had ever shown any signs of, of just not being on top of everything was um, in a year when we lost, he, he actually broke off an engagement and then we lost two grandmothers and all of that happened in 10 weeks. And for the funeral of our second grandmother, he came to me in tears and said, I can't do the eulogy, you'll have to do it. And that's when I knew that it had just got too much. And mm -hmm. at time, at that time, there was a lot of stuff going on within the international airline he was with. Um, so he was actively involved because he has this huge sense of justice. So he was actively involved um, in the work situation as well. Uh, but what happened was that when he probably just needed a month off and take stock and have a break and, you know, just get over some of the curveballs that life had just thrown, um, a doctor gave him an antidepressant. And he'd never needed anything like that ever before. Um, but what that meant was he couldn't fly. So all of a sudden you had him... Um, out of uniform, not able to go and work, couldn't work for six months until you'd not had a tablet for six months. Um, and so you take away that sense of identity and that yep. purpose to get up. Yep. Um, he had his pilot's income protection, so he had plenty of money still coming in the door. So there was no need to get up and go and get another job. Um, and um, then he hooked up with this psychiatrist on the Sunshine Coast who just kept filling him with prescription medication. And we had no idea really what was going on in those first few years. Could we you didn't... not see a change? Uh, not a lot because he hid it from us. So he didn't live with us. That's the problem. If someone's not living with you... Um, so when he first had, had that time off work, he would have been, I don't know, 34 or 35. He wasn't living with us. And so he would come and see us when he was feeling good. If he wasn't good, we wouldn't see him. So he didn't open up to me about how bad things were for a number of years. Were you shocked when he finally said, listen, Ron, this is where I'm at? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's the last, he's the last person I would have expected to be like that sometimes when that happens we can look back and see things that we overlooked do you, have you ever thought back and thought Geez, did I miss something or was it was he that clever that I just couldn't see anything I just he was that clever yeah wow because he kept he started traveling a lot uh, overseas because he had the means with which to do it he, he didn't have a you know wife or children to keep him at home and so I, I remember thinking those years 
man, you've got a good life. You know, you're, you're flitting off to Peru and, oh, now you're at the Winter Olympics in Italy and, oh, now you're over here, you know, life's good. And he'd come go, yeah, life's fantastic. But then you wouldn't see him when he was then struggling with all this medication he was being fed. We didn't see him. And I had two little kids then. So was, was he, was he escaping overseas as part of his yeah. coping mechanism? He was. Yeah, yeah. So he kept running. And I only found this out later. Yeah. But he was. He was going overseas because it would keep him interested and engaged and not thinking about the things that were upsetting him um, until it got to a point where running away was the norm and then you weren't running away at all. You were just in another country in strife yeah. and even further away from family and friends. Um, so he I, he called me in really to be actively involved when we were about three three years or so before we lost him. Okay. So about 2005 and 2004 is when I really became aware of the state was, that he was in. If I can take you back to the actual day and the few days afterwards what are your enduring recollections i mean it, it's seared on the minds of all of us who have been through a lived experience what are your enduring recollections if at all of those few days the morning of my birthday um i woke at six feeling really sick in the stomach like i was like a premonition, like a like a yeah. There was a real a sense bomb. of dread yeah, in my okay. stomach because I knew because of everything that had happened leading into it, and him being upset about me not being in Sydney, me wishing I was there. I was legitimately concerned that we might lose him that weekend. Um, it was another thing that had played on my mind about me being in Sydney. I was concerned about me traipsing around Sydney in the middle of the night trying to find him mm. and not feeling safe about that. Yep. Um, so there was a lot of angst when I woke. Um, of course, the kids then came bounding in with prezzies and everything. So you sort of, you know, mask all the turmoil and have your birthday morning. And we went out to brekkie with mum, um, still just feeling. I just, in my gut, I knew. I, I didn't, I, I can't say I knew that he was, dead but I was very very worried and um, kept thinking okay I can't ring yet because he'll be asleep he'll be asleep um, so I went to breakfast dropped mum home we took the kids to New Farm Park actually for a play and I don't know whether they were misbehaving or not or just being normal kids but at some point I just said I can't do this anymore I've just got to go we've got to go home and we were driving home when the phone rang. Um, I think they must have phoned, they must have rung on my husband's phone, on Glenn's phone. But I picked it up because he was driving and it was a policeman. And so they asked to speak to Glenn and he took that call and I've just um, mouthed the words, uh, is it Mark? And he's looked at me and nodded. And... Um, I, I indicated uh, something in terms of what he'd done and Glenn shook his head um, and I indicated something else and he and he nodded and I just screamed. Um, so I do remember just um, 
screaming and bashing the dash and and I remember Glenn looking at me shaking his head and you know sort of back at the kids like for me to try and keep my self in control because the little ones were in the back frightened because I didn't have a clue what was going on um so we were very very close to home um and so we just went straight to my mum's where the police were so they had found um a actually a birthday card um that she'd sent to him because he um his birthday was only a couple of weeks before mine and that's how they tracked us down and he died at six o'clock that morning which is the time i woke um, so i literally woke up when he died um so i don't know just went in mum was I don't know how long the police had been with her before they rang me. She seemed to be, I mean, I guess she'd gone into mother mode. So she'd gone into try, you know, into caring mode of me. Um, I remember just bashing on her door when we arrived for her to let me in. And I rang, at some point I rang my dad's place. Um, I remember just hearing this guttural moaning going on in the background when I rang there. Um, so that house was falling apart. And um, I don't know, the rest of that day, all I really recall is sitting on the couch, um, phone call from um, best friends. Two of them were in Melbourne packing their bags and on the next flight. So they were up here that afternoon. And um, I don't know that I saw anyone else that day. The next day... No one told me until the next day. My uncle actually also died the same day as Mark, um, my dad's brother. He had had a fight with cancer and he he died a few hours after Mark did. But no one told me that. And then, um, I think I saw my dad. Actually, do, you know, I don't remember. I don't remember. Mm. if I, I must have gone out to my dad's that day. I, I can't imagine I wouldn't have, but I actually don't remember. But at some time in the next day or so, I remember Dad coming over and I'd been told that my uncle had also died. And I remember just looking at him and just going, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And he said to me, Bronwyn, it's okay, my bucket's full. I can't, I can't grieve anymore or feel anymore. So he'd found out about Mark first. And there was just no room for him to grieve his brother at that time. Um, and I must admit, I feel a bit bad about <laughs> about that because Mark's death for us overshadowed death of our uncle. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's just the way it is. And I think that was a good analogy of Dad's. There was just no space. Mm. Um, yeah, so it was a very bad day for the Edwards family. <laughs> you would have received lots of uh, positive support from family, friends, all those sorts of things. Yeah. We were so lucky. Uh, so I, I know lots of people who have um, really experienced terrible stigma. Um, and I think I think Mum has experienced some of that, mm. where people, you know, haven't said anything because they haven't want known how, what to say or whatever. But personally, I, I was absolutely amazed because, obviously, from my closest friends, they were just there and just did not go away. Um, did not leave me. They were amazing. But even we had very new friends in this suburb because Zali had only just gone to prep that year. 
So we had only known some of these people for six, seven months and they were incredible. They were around here with flowers and food and taking the kids and cards and they were just incredible. You know, they're some of our closest friends now, but back then they were, you know, the parents of friends that Zali had made and lovely people, but they just stepped up. They weren't shy to come round. Did that surprise you a little bit? No, because I had no concept about suicide. So I didn't I didn't know about suicide and therefore I didn't know about the stigma surrounding suicide. Mm. So to me that was fantastic and normal and that's what I would do because they're just nice people. Yeah. yeah. Um, looking back now I realise that we were incredibly lucky that those people had the courage to do that and didn't feel like they couldn't come around or... I even had mother, one particular mum come to me 12 months later and say, listen, I, I just really want to let you know how sorry I am. She said, I've looked at you so many times over the last 12 months and wanted to come and talk to you, but every time I've looked at you, you've just looked like you were just on the verge of tears and I just didn't want to upset you and didn't know what to mm. say. But 12 months later, she still came up, which was amazing. How would that feel for you? That was fantastic. Yeah. So would you encourage others, and we'll talk a little bit about this later on, but would you encourage people to just pole up and, Absolutely. and just, you know, say what they need to say? Yeah, yeah. and it's and it's even even people saying, I have no idea what to say to you, but I'm just so sorry. I'm okay with that. Because, yeah. you know, there is nothing, no one can say anything to make mm. you feel better. Yeah. But just someone acknowledging what you're going through or been through or yep. is... Um, really makes a difference. So out of this came Roses in the Ocean. It's a, an enduring memory. Um, it honours the it honours your brother and it honours your experience. When did the motivation for Roses first arrive? Uh, because um, because Zali and Harrison were so little and but more than that, well it wasn't that I didn't want them at a funeral when they were that little. I don't have a problem with taking kids to a funeral. But because they were little, they needed um, a lot of care and, and attention at, at that age. And I was incapable. Um, I was literally breathing. It, I, I really was. For how long, Rob? I... If I hadn't had the kids, I don't know that I would have bothered getting up for a year. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. It was somewhere around that two, two and a half year mark that I actually noticed that the sky was blue. I was really in a absolute fog and haze for a good couple of years. Um, and the other thing was that Mark's um, great friend, Jose, who um, lived in... Peru couldn't get a visa to get um, to Australia in time for the funeral. And so what we did was we, we waited until he could get out here um, and then we went to Coolum, which is where Mark had lived, and took the kids. The whole family came, including Jose, <clears throat> my parents and Dad's wife. Um, and um, we said goodbye there Um so we took roses to put in the ocean and, and we just had to have a message for the kids because we'd always said to them, 
oh, Uncle Mark's really sad and that's why, you know, in the three or four years leading into it when I would have to disappear and rush up to Coolum and be there for a couple of days to help him or whatever it was, it would be, look, Uncle Mark's really sad at the moment, Mum needs to go. Or, But we just needed them to understand that just because you got sad didn't mean you died. Mm. Um, and so we talked to them about the fact that when life's really difficult and the waves are rough and all that sort of stuff, use the ocean as an analogy, that you just had to reach out and ask for help. Or if you saw a friend, then you needed to reach out to them and see if you could support them in some way. But that there were calmer waters further out and that you'd always get through the rough times. And so in Kids Talk, we just talked to them about, look, let's put the roses in the ocean and it will make all the animals in the ocean really happy and the turtles and the whales mm. and the whales. And, um, and so we did that and as Harrison threw his in, this beautiful turtle surfaced and took a breath right at the base of the rocks. We had a whale breaching offshore and um, sea eagles flying over us. It was just this really surreal day. Um, and then we all swam, um, <clears throat> swam in the ocean and it was just that real cleansing, peaceful day. It felt very peaceful down there. It was the beach where Mark always swam. He would swim every day. Um, and it was two weeks after and you really, it's very exhausting. You get, you somehow get to the funeral um, and I had organised the funeral um, with mum and dad's help, of course, but you, you kind of feel like you need to take a fairly strong leadership role in those sorts of situations. I'd done the eulogy at, at Mark's funeral and so you get to the end of that and it's, people start going back to their regular lives and your friends can't stay sitting with you in your lounge mm. the whole time because they've got to go to work and they've got their own families. And and so that two-week mark, um, I think, was really good timing. So, um, yeah, so that's where Roses in the Ocean started. Um, but it wasn't until after a couple of years that I actually had, like, the fire in my belly was there. I knew I needed to create something out of the tragedy. I didn't want him just to be one of the 2,000, whatever, 2,198, I think it was in 2008. Didn't want him to be just one of those numbers. Yep. And I'd always sort of said to the kids, oh, there's always a silver lining, you know, look for the silver lining. And there just wasn't one. Um, I, don't, I don't see that there is anything positive that comes out of a suicide. But I just had to set about creating something. And so um, when I finally re-emerged with a fire in my belly, decided that we needed to, to do something to change the, the whole awareness around suicide and how it's spoken about and, and help people actually find help because we had really struggled to find the right help. We had no idea what was the right help. We had no idea that the help he was given actually was not helping and that we should mm. have been pushing to change that. We didn't have any of that knowledge. And we do provide, um, you know, help, support in terms of, you know, information and all those sorts of different things. But Roses is different because there's a lot of people out there, a lot of organisations, a lot of not-for-profits that provide that sort of theoretical um, support, but also, um, you know, can point people in the right direction to get knowledge and information about all those sorts of things. But Rito is about, Roses in the Ocean is about lived experience. Why lived experience? Well... If you want to know what something feels like or what the best thing is to do in a situation, to me the most obvious thing is to ask someone who's been there. And so 
by us engaging people with a lived experience of suicide and talking to them and getting information from them, we're getting the real facts and it's and it's something that everyone can relate to. So even if someone can't, even if someone hasn't been touched by suicide before, they will all relate to being a father or a brother or a sister of. And I think the messages that come through stories, people remember, as opposed to having an expert in the field rattle off some statistics um, or point you in the direction of a glossy brochure. So you're right, there are some fantastic service providers out there. There's a lot of good resources, but it's still a minefield as to how to find them. And so when you couple the two main things that we do in terms of really working closely and empowering lived experienced people to be able to share their stories and, and become actively involved in suicide prevention, couple that with the community events that we host and the work that we do to support communities to host their own awareness events. With the two combined, we're really linking communities with their local service providers. And, and I think that is something that is really lacking. Um, and it's something that's very practical that helps people um, navigate their way through, you know, if they're dealing with, with this sort of issue. Um, but also just it... it it really helps other community members understand more about suicide so they're not quite so scared about it. So we're, we're sort of breaking down that stigma and that enables them to support other people in their communities a lot more um, and, you know, take care of themselves and the people closest to them. And what's the vision? Where does, where does Roses in the Ocean go? Vision's huge. Okay. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so... Um, I guess there's a couple of there's a couple of visions in, in a sense. I, um, when I first started, I really dreamt of roses being placed in the ocean all around the world um, as something that was very practical and tangible for anyone to do. And so, but not in the sense of a memorial service. So there are memorial services around, and they're done beautifully, and they suit a certain person who likes to go to memorial services. I've never been to one. It's not something that I personally look for. And to me, I wanted, um, I wanted to provide people with something tangible to do to acknowledge the prevalence of suicide, but also to make a statement that they are prepared to talk about it, prepared to ask for help if they need it, and prepared to be courageous enough to reach out to other people. And so um, the, the concept of the rose and, and putting it in an ocean or a river or a creek or a dam, wherever they may be, yep. um, to me gave communities the ability to come together as well so that you've got that connection happening that's so important. And um, as it turns out, it's going to happen a lot sooner than we thought. Okay. Um, so... International Association of Suicide Prevention, they are the ones who, I guess, hold on to and host World Suicide Prevention Day globally. And they have a couple of initiatives at the moment that people can be involved in. Um, one is lighting a candle in a window on World Suicide Prevention Day. Um, the other is a global bike ride where people add to the kilometres that are ridden and what have you. Um, but I wrote to them a little while ago and explained the concept of Roses in the Ocean and... 
they've decided that they'd like to take that on board. So next year, um, that will be fantastic. So we've got a lot of work to do because mm. we've got to really hone in how we articulate that message. And um, but there's, you know, I've got a lot of ideas that, and, and my amazing team that work with me. You know, we've all got these ideas on how we can really um, push that out globally. So that's really exciting. And then back home here, it's. Um, I would really love to see our World Suicide Prevention Day events all around the country. So this year has been a terrific start with the support of Queensland Mental Health Commission. So we have um, now got fantastic resources online for people. How do you host awareness events? How do you keep people safe? Um, what sorts of information should you be um, making available to people, which organisations do you call in to be part of the events, all of that sort of thing. So our job now is to make that go national. Um, and we like collaborating with organisations. So, you know, we, we are already in discussions with a number of big national organisations. So how can we work together to um, expand that awareness around World Suicide Prevention Day? Um, but then on top of that, we, we have great plans for what we can do to support people with lived experience because there's lots of people out there that want to do something. Yeah. They want to get involved um, but don't quite know how. And because of our work over the last few years and through all the conversations we have with the lived experience people we work with, we know that we've got a big responsibility to keep those people safe as well. And so we're, we're now working with people to help them identify um, what are their skill sets outside of their lived experience? Um, what are the messages from their lived experience? How do we put those together and help them decide the best way that they can utilise that lived experience and how they can work in that suicide prevention space? What would you say to someone who right now is thinking, wow, I'd love to, I'd love to get involved. What do I do? What's, what's next for me? Yeah. Get in contact with us. Okay. <laughs> so what we're um, we're in the process of putting together a, um, a fantastic workshop that will be available um, to kick off early next year. So we will be able to help you identify where you'd like to work and how, um, how to keep yourself safe. Um, you'll become part of the Rose in the Ocean family. We've got a great mentoring program because um, it's really important to just identify. Um, how much, what's your capacity, to what extent do you want to be involved, how do we take care of you while you do that, um, and where can we best utilise you. So there's all sorts of opportunities, from volunteering at simple events to advocating at a government level. You know, So it's it's really up to you as to how um, how you get involved. But, um, yes, so I'd say get in touch. So one of those events recently was in the Queen Street Mall here in Brisbane. It was, last Friday. Um, World Suicide Prevention Day. And yeah. we handed out how many roses on this occasion? We went through a 1,000 roses in three hours and we wow. ran out. Um, so we didn't quite have enough. Um, but at the same time, we had another event happening in the Riparian Plaza. So they had roses um, being given out in their foyer to people. We had businesses taking roses and delivering to their staff. And we had... Um, 10 or so other events happening around Queensland that were hosted by local champions, either community groups or individual people with lived experience who had utilised our resources. And that was exciting because we had things from webinars to morning teas to spring fairs to mental health expos, um, discussions in town halls that 
whole variety of things, which is what it should be, because each community needs and wants something different. And Roses was mentioned in Parliament too, wasn't it? Yeah, Tim, uh, Tim Nichols actually came to a corporate breakfast that we held on the 31st, uh, which was fantastic to have uh, him there. And as it turns out, he actually knew Mark. They were in um, uh, at school together in high wow. school. Okay. He didn't realise that Mark had um, taken his life, had passed away. Uh, and, yeah, he went back to Parliament that day and spoke about suicide and the need for us to be talking about it, and um, which was lovely of him to compliment the work of Roses in the Ocean and encourage the government to get behind us. So, But, uh, yeah, he was genuinely touched and it was it was very nice of him to go back and, and talk to us, talk to Parliament about us. Well, it's exciting to see people like him and others who are significant in their fields um, opening up the conversation on suicide. And, and I know, um, you know, it's been amazing having been part of this journey with you for uh, for a little while, it's been amazing to see the growth. Um, it's almost, it feels a little bit like a tipping point, doesn't it? It feels like we're just starting to crack momentum and and things are starting to happen, which are which are really exciting. Yeah, I, I, I believe that. And in fact, it's, uh, I said that sort of 12 months ago at our gala, so we're at, we're at this tipping point, and I really believe that, that it's happened. Um, Cameron Dick, the health minister here in Queensland, is so incredibly... Um, committed to suicide prevention and um, he is really trying to build that momentum and change in Queensland which is great the Queensland Mental Health Commission's right behind us so we we certainly have a lot of big things on the calendar and we've got a lot of support for ourselves now so I think there's just a lot of work to do um, but bigger and better things happening do you feel a bit overwhelmed sometimes at the scale of it? Does, yes. it, does it ever kind of, you know, do you ever think, oh, well, how am I ever going to make this change, you know, so big? And now oh, we go yeah. global, you know, you start talking about other you know, countries. I but... don't get overwhelmed by um, roses in the ocean because the group we've got around us are fantastic. Yeah, they are. And... I know at some point I have to stop keeping up, coming up with ideas because I keep adding to the workload. Um, but I'm confident that we can keep going. The thing that I get overwhelmed with is when you look at suicide as a big picture and how complex it is and how many changes have to happen, that's when I get overwhelmed. And I have to remind myself that I'm not actually responsible solely for doing that, that yeah. it's... I'm part of a much, much bigger picture. So it's a matter of us making sure that we're just influencing in the right way, getting enough lived experience involved. So we've got to play our part in that bigger picture because Roses is very much grassroots in the activities that we run, but it's also incredibly strategic. So Roses in the Ocean has been involved in uh, developing the Suicide Prevention Action Plan for Queensland. So we were part of that group of people consulted for that and we're on that reference group. We're part of the National Coalition. Um, we are, uh, I'm, I'm now the, one of the co-chairs of the new Queensland Suicide Prevention Task Force. So that is a lived experience representation on that task force, which is fantastic. But when you, when you start looking at, okay, here's some money and we need to fix the hospital and health service and and how suicide is handled and, and it's like, wow, that's so big. 
that's when I get a bit overwhelmed yeah. and have to bring myself back to think, okay, we're part of a bigger picture here. And Yeah, great. We finish with two questions. We'll ask the same two questions to everyone who comes on Rose's radio. Uh, the first question is, what do we need to change in the way that society deals with suicide? I think we need a, a real cultural change around suicide. I think people have to, A, realise how prevalent it is and that it can touch anybody. And those of us who are involved in suicide prevention work, I believe there needs to be this massive cultural change that people actually believe that we can do it because most suicides are preventable. Mm. You'll never get no suicides, but most of them are preventable. And if we can actually believe that and if we can get everybody working together, then it can be done. What's the message you'd like to put out to those who are grappling with this right now, either a experiencing it, uh, a survivor of it? What would you tell them? I'd ask you please to reach out to someone. Find someone who will listen and talk and help you because you can get through it. You know, there are a lot of people out there who have been in a suicidal place and who are now living very meaningful, important lives. Um, and there are thousands of people who've been bereaved and have lost someone and they have survived and life goes on and you can thrive again and be happy. Um, and it's just a matter of reaching out and asking, asking for help. Yes, it is. Well, I'm certainly proud to work with you in this particular area, as I know there are many others uh, who are inspired by your story and inspired by what it is that you're doing. And what you're doing with Roses is profoundly uh, influencing and impacting on the lives of many people who desperately need um, this sort of information, this sort of support. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for coming on Roses Radio. Thank you. And it's been great to have this conversation um, with you. And um, I look forward to having further conversations as we see roses in the ocean grow and as we see us beginning to have more and more of an impact on the lives of those who are around us and who need uh, the support that roses can offer them. Thank you so much. Just the hurt that you hide when you're lost In conclusion, we remember those that we've lost to suicide and we acknowledge the suffering that suicide brings when it touches our lives. We really do need to provide for all people a future that inspires and empowers individuals and communities and is filled with hope and meaning. And if you or anyone that uh, you know needs support, you should contact people like Lifeline like the Suicide Callback Service or Kids Helpline who help with children and teenagers from ages 5 to 25 offering phone, web and email counselling and also information for parents. In the event that you'd like to assist the work of Roses in the Ocean in conjunction with Suicide Prevention Australia through speaking engagements in your local community, 
then please make contact with Roses in the Ocean on www.rosesintheocean, all one word, .com.au or 1-300-411-461. Thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to bringing you other inspiring stories from those with a suicide lived experience. Ooh.